Now less than four hours away from a weekend. You ready? Hopefully. John Wilson's been telling us all week this weekend is not too bad. 15 degrees. That's okay. A little bit of cloud on Sunday. Don't worry about that. We'll take the warm weather. It's playoff weather. Can you smell the playoffs? It is playoff weather. Last weekend of the regular season in the National Hockey League, if you are a Montreal Canadiens fan, well, that's too bad. A lot of sad Montreal Canadiens fans. They're not out of it yet, but if Columbus beats the New York Rangers tonight, they are. And I always get a kick out of this time of the year because you've got teams that rest players. So, in other words, they, they won't play them. They give them nights off. And then you get other teams that complain about that because the game matters a lot to them. Don't. Don't don't complain. It's more the fans who do the complaining. Don't complain. Be better sooner. If you are in a position to rest players, you've earned that. You did better earlier. It's kind of like the people who hustle around at the last minute. Procrastinating has just taken them to the edge. And now, oh, I got I to get this done. And I'm putting it, okay, uh, here. I got, I got that report done for you. Whew. Is the report any good? No. It's done, but it's not any good. So there's there's something to be said about procrastination and avoiding that. Isn't that a weird thing? Yes, avoid procrastination. There's something else that I'm trying to make sense of right now. Here are a couple of the things that we have on the show today first, but there's something that I'm trying to make sense of. We are going to talk about how we may be able to live forever. Uh, Well, I don't know if we want to put it in that nutshell, but if you want to live a longer, healthier life, it could be a couple of decades away. And it has nothing to do with you exercising, and it has nothing to do with you eating right. Now, that doesn't mean you can sit around on the couch and fill your face with taquitos all day. I don't know if you could eat that many. The the hot ones, you can only eat a few of those. I don't know anybody who could get through a bag of taquitos. But if you are somebody that is thinking, yeah, well, I'd I'd just like to take advantage of the years of my life that I feel good. Could you imagine? Because, you know, when you get into your 40s and 50s, all of a sudden your elbow starts to hurt and you have no idea why. And then it'll hurt for about six months and then that goes away and then your shoulder will start to hurt. There's always something hurting. I have no idea what it is. Is it the energy force in your body that's that's kind of going wonky? We're going to talk with a couple of doctors from the Mayo Clinic, and they've isolated these cells. And here's how to think of it. You've got these cells that, as we age, start to be nasty little beings in our bodies, and they start to kill other cells. And sometimes this can lead to the development of things like Alzheimer's. Sometimes it can just lead to overall aging. So if we could... Tell these cells, hey, hey, buster. I don't know what you call a cell that kills other cells and doesn't do much else. Hey, 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 buster, stop doing that. If we could do that, we may be able to make a big difference. Now, we have no role in this, but the doctors that we will speak with in about a half hour absolutely do. So it's not about making us live longer because, as you will hear them talk about, Who wants to live to 130 if you feel 130? What about if you lived to 130, but you felt 25, 30 years old up until the time you were 90? Huh? What about that? Well, well, that would be all right. Well, I'd like that. So we'll find out exactly what they're doing because they've identified these cells and they have found ways to eliminate 
these cells. And they will warn us. This is not something that we should go out and throw into our bodies right now. Uh, They have compounds. They have things like that. They're testing them. They've tested them on mice. They've worked out very well on mice. Now they're starting to test them on humans. But you should not put this stuff into your body. Because I don't know if you've seen some of the individuals who do genetic testing and things just in their own homes. You can order all kinds of things online. You can put the compounds together yourself and either you're injecting it into yourself or you're buying a lot of hamsters or whatever it is that you're doing in order to test this stuff out. Don't do that. Leave that to the professionals. And we'll talk to a couple of very, very important professionals. We will talk some London Knights hockey. We are also going to visit the province of Saskatchewan because we have reached one year since the crash that took the lives of so many people in the Humboldt Broncos family and the hockey community. And so we'll we'll look back at what happened a year ago and look at what's happened in this past year. Plus, we are going to talk about Amber Alerts because that's something else that has come a long way, and it's come a long way in 10 years. If you think of the murder of Tory Stafford, and we've been hearing on the Craig Needle show from Tory's father, Rodney Stafford, and we know about what he has planned in making another trip to Ottawa. But overall, you have to go back to the time that Tory Stafford was abducted, and you have to look at what would have happened if an Amber Alert program had existed the same way it does now, back then. Because it wasn't the same. Changes were made shortly after that. And because of that, And now we've got an Amber Alert program that we've got to take maybe more seriously than we do. Because what's been one of the biggest changes in the last year? Well, now we get the alerts on our cell phones. Well, we get a lot of alerts on our cell phones. And you have have the people. And I'm not going to fit them with a name. I could call them all kinds of things. But let's just call them people. And what they do is they, they complain. And there aren't, I don't believe there are very many of them. But they get picked up on in the media. I don't believe there are a lot of people who have the audacity to complain that, oh, I am missing 19 seconds of my show because this alert has come on my screen. Or, oh, my phone went off. I thought it was something important. And then I looked down, it was just an amber alert. That's an attitude that you do hear. And I think the media is to blame for picking up on stories like that. Because I don't think it's too many people who feel like that. But when you look at what this has done, we're going to hear a success story in about five minutes. And that success story is going to talk about what did happen one night after an Amber Alert had been issued. And if I was to ask you right now, how many Amber Alerts have we had in the province of Ontario this year? What would you say? I don't know. 12? 20? Lots. Yeah, they they happen all the time. Two. Just two. That's it. How many did we have in 2018? I don't know. 20, 30, one. Just one. That was it. And it was in Thunder Bay. But we are going to talk with the OPP's Amber Alert Program Manager. And and Sergeant Whaley is going to go through some of the things that do take place, why they take place, how they take place. And hopefully by the end of this half hour, we're going to have a better understanding of Amber Alert, so that if it does come on while you're watching something, that you wait the 19 seconds or the 20 seconds or whatever it takes. And you pay attention, because there's a story that Sergeant Whaley will tell 
that will show how important it is to pay attention. Here's the thing I'm having trouble understanding. Yesterday on On Point with Alex Pearson, last night, we got to talking about a few things, and one of the things that came up was the story from Premier Doug Ford about $72 billion being spent by the province compensating its public service employees. So anybody that winds up being paid by the government. He had said $72 billion was spent per year in compensating the public service. And so I did some digging into this because I thought, didn't we hear something a while ago that doesn't really sound the same? Because I did the math. You've got 650,000 public service employees. I think it works out to one in 11 but 650,000 public service employees in the province of Ontario. So if you take the $72 billion that Premier Ford contends is being paid and you break that down per employee, you've got an average annual salary there of $110,769 or, yeah, $110,769.23. I know that some public service employees are well paid. But I'm figuring that the average wouldn't come out like that. So I got my shovel and my pickaxe, and I went digging. And I found that last year, Peter Weltman, who was the financial accountability officer, released some facts. And it contended, those facts contended that the Ontario government did employ 1 in 10, 1 in 11 salaried workers in that range, and that they were paying out $41.4 billion in salary and wages. How could we go from $41 billion to $72 billion in a year? Truth of the matter is we didn't. And it concerns me that the Premier has just kind of blurted out a number here. $72 billion. Where are you getting that number from? I don't know. Because he does blurt sometimes, doesn't he? So if you actually took the figures and took the $41.4 billion, and divided by the number of employees, you'd get an average annual salary of $63,692.30. Still a good salary, but definitely more reasonable when you think about public sector employees than if the average salary was 110000 And we do know that the Premier would like to get rid of some jobs. He's made that very clear. The education sector is, is a place that seems to be on the radar, we don't know what's going to happen in the health sector in terms of jobs. We'll have to wait for the super agency to come into complete existence. But yeah, I'd, when your financial accountability officer is showing you data that says $41.4 billion is paid, and then about a year later, you have the premier saying it's $72 billion, that's a big difference. That's a big difference. So I'm not ready to take that $72 billion at face value. I'm trying to figure that one out. We're going to take a break. We will talk Amber Alert in just a moment. When the alert goes off, there's a reason to pay attention. And that will be outlined by the Ontario Provincial Police and their Amber Alert program manager in just moments. On London Live and Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We have a world filled with alerts. Used to be your alarm was about the only alert you got. That and your smoke detector. That was it. Alarm got you up in the morning, smoke detector, 
could go off. Probably should check that out if it does. Now we are filled with alerts. Look at this. Here's an alert that just popped up. Michael Hutchinson is going to be the Leafs' number two goalie. Garrett Sparks no longer with the Leafs. That's an alert. Just popped up. All Leaf fans want to make sure that they know what's going on with their team. Well, some alerts, because we have so many, seem to get lost in the shuffle. And they probably, in fact, not probably, they definitely should not. Amber alerts have changed a lot in the last little while. And in a little while after news, we'll look back at the guidelines that were brought in for the Amber Alert system. But I want to talk about the Amber Alert system right now, and we're lucky enough to have the program manager for the Amber Alert program across the entire OPP, Sergeant Stacy Whaley, joining us to look at some of the important things that maybe we overlook. You know, if, if you get annoyed by an alert coming over and telling you about a child somewhere in the province... Yeah, that's what we're addressing right now. Sergeant Whaley, thanks so much for being here. How are things today? Things are well, Mike. Things are well. Thanks very much. Let's kind of look at Amber Alert. It's something that years ago you had to take a minute to realize what it meant. How close into the everyday vocabulary do you think Amber Alert is right now? Well, I think the biggest difference, uh, and this is less than a year old, is is the messages are broadcast on mobile phones, and that just came into effect in um, June of 2000, or sorry, April of 2018. So I think that's what uh, the public is having a harder time getting their heads wrapped around. So no longer is it just their television program or their radio station being interrupted. It's it's much more personal than that now. And we've had people who who have obviously expressed concern over that. I think their voices get a little loud than what the actual general public is feeling about this sort of thing. But when you look at the importance of issuing an Amber Alert and what it is designed to do, can you help us understand from a policing perspective what's happening when that message goes out, when it hits our phones, when it hits our TVs, when it hits the radio? Certainly. Uh, quite simply, uh, a child's life is at risk. Uh, and they're in grave danger. And, and through investigation and through the criteria, we've established that. And um, so when that notification goes out, uh, and, and as a police community, you know, we've been involved in mobilization and engagement for a number of years now. So we're relying on the public for a, a lot of uh, what happens out there. And it, it, the police can't do it alone. And Amber Alert is no different than that. So, and I, I just I bring you to the February 14th uh, incident that uh, started in Peel region, where, um, you know, even though we didn't locate the the victim, uh, as a direct result of somebody hearing the alert driving on the 400 uh, near Aurelia, uh, was able to pick up that vehicle in the middle of the night, pick up that plate, alert the authorities, alert the OPP to the location of that vehicle, and we were able to make an apprehension. So. That's just one example, a recent example of, of how the program works, and I'm sure that uh, Good Samaritan didn't think in a million years as he's driving up the 400 that uh, um, he was going to come across that vehicle, but he did. And then had the presence of mind to have paid attention to the Amber Alert, because a lot of times we get a we get a lot of notifications, we get a lot of alerts, especially on our phones, and it's very easy to go, bah, and swipe it away, and it's gone. Uh, that person obviously didn't do that. Correct. No, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. And he, uh, you know, he 
stayed on the line for a number of minutes, and and while officers got into position, and then uh, and that even went, they went off the 400 uh, at that point. So he had to do more than just continue on his way in that case. So, which is above and beyond. And but there's that's a great example of how uh, effective it can be. We're talking with OPP Sergeant Stacy Whaley, Amber Alert Program Manager. Time is always so sensitive in cases like this. Sergeant Whaley, how do the police decide, yes, issue that Amber Alert? Well, there has to be, uh, there is a criteria, and I'll get to that in a second, but uh, investigative steps have to occur in order for the Amber Alert to, to kick in. So it's not automatic. In uh, some cases, it might be very, very close to automatic, depending on those circumstances. Every case is different. So the OPP uh, manages Ontar- uh, Amber Alert for the province of Ontario, but uh, any police service in the province of Ontario can request an Amber Alert. So they they do their investigation, or in, in some cases, it might be the OPP, you know, in our jurisdiction, that does the investigation, make the request to our provincial um, operations center, and which is uh, operated 24-7 and has a duty inspector at all times, and then that request is put in. There are three distinct things that have to occur uh, for an Amber Alert to be authorized. Uh, law enforcement agency has to believe that a child under the age of 18 years old has been abducted. We believe that the child is in danger, and there has to be a descriptive information about one or more of either the child, the abductor, or the vehicle. So all three thing of those things, uh, and then one of the three uh, subcategories in the point number three that I mentioned has to occur before we'll even consider it. How rare would you say Amber Alerts are in investigations? Last resort type of thing, or or is it not even quite like that? Yeah, I wouldn't want to word it as a last resort because uh, it, it might be it might be the very best thing that we can do at that time and give circumstances. Uh, I can tell you, though, in 2018, we had one for the whole province of Ontario, and that was up in the Thunder Bay area, and that was in May of 2018. We've had two so far in 2019. And um, so who knows? I mean, it's uh, there are times when certainly uh, we get called from other agencies saying, you know, we've got a case, we're considering an Amber Alert, and because it just doesn't happen with a simple request like that. Uh, you know, a little bit of work has to go into it on both ends, and then we may get a call saying, uh, you know what, uh, we got this resolved, we don't need the Amber Alert, thank you. So, I mean, those things do happen as well, and of course when that happens, the alert does not go out. But um, the actual alerts have gone out twice so far in 2019, only one time in 2018. So it doesn't happen often. I don't like to use the word rare, but certainly one could argue that it's rare. We're talking with OPP Sergeant Stacy Whaley on London Live. Sergeant Whaley is the Amber Alert Program Manager. If there was a message that you wanted all of us to know about Amber Alerts, what would that be? Well, the message is, again, that a child, if an Amber Alert is being issued, a child's life is at stake. And I would like everybody to take that into perspective. And uh, yeah, I get that if it's in another area of the province, uh, the odds of somebody um, pr- contributing significantly to locating the child are pretty slim. Um, but because of geography and because of the travel, and, and it's, it's, we can't take a chance. I mean, that's the way the Alert Ready program works is, is it uh, 
encompasses the whole province, so that's what we're going to do. Uh, what I don't want to see is uh, people can get upset about it and uptight about it, and, and I realize that, but you got to put it in perspective that a, a child's life is in danger, and we're doing everything we can to try to save that child's life. And it, it gets really, really complicated when people start calling 911 because they're uptight and upset that their phone's going off and it's inconveniencing them. That's it's not an appropriate reaction to that. And not only that, but it's putting other people at risk because it, it restricts and limits the use of 911 and people are using it for a reason that they're not supposed to. So uh, after the dust settles and if, you, if someone's still really upset about it, there are avenues that they can take to uh, voice their frustration. I mean, the OPP has a an email address that uh, can be reached anytime at opp.ca, our, our website, and uh, certainly the agency that's dealing with the missing child, while they're looking for the missing child, doesn't need to deal with the complaints in regards to the Amber Alert and the fact that it, it's inconvenient, you know, while they're putting all their resources into trying to find a missing child. So I think it's a common sense approach, and uh, people just need to use common sense. Well said. Sergeant Whaley, thank you so much for your time today in talking about this. You're welcome, Mike. Anytime. OPP Sergeant Stacy Whaley, Amber Alert Program Manager. So some of those common sense things, and absolutely that's what it is. It is common sense stuff. It doesn't come up very often, but look, you have somebody driving along at night, they look ahead of them and they say, yeah, wait a minute, that's from the Amber Alert. And next thing you know, the child is found safely. We'll take a break for news. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Still to come on the show, we're going to go to Saskatchewan. We also have a couple of interesting things that we don't normally do on Saturdays coming up tomorrow. We have the OHL Priority Selection, which is going to take place starting at 9 a.m., but you can come on over to the Bull and Barrel and join in some of the festivities there. And we do have a live draft show that's going to begin at 11 in the morning and run until 1 o'clock, where we're going to be talking about what the London Knights have done, some area players as well, where they've gone. We are going to be in conversation with Rob Suzuki, who has two sons who have been selected, one number one overall, one in the first round. He's been through an NHL draft, and let's go through what it's like to be a dad. Uh, We're also going to go to Kingston, where Shane Wright has been named the number one overall pick already. So that's happening. And then at 1 o'clock in the afternoon through until 2 o'clock, we have a very special one-hour program that will focus on the Humboldt Broncos one year later. So that's coming up. In fact, we'll have a little bit of a preview of what that show will be about next hour. So lots to do. In the meantime, you like it here? You like this whole being on Earth thing? Having a good time? Hope so. Hope so. Uh, If you do, would you like to stay here as long as possible? Why not? Nowhere else to really go. Mars looks really boring. Uh, The moon would be fun for about a day, and I think it would probably get pretty boring, pretty desolate. So, yeah, this this is a good spot. Well, we've got a couple of doctors from the Mayo Clinic who are getting closer and closer to research and findings that could help us to, yes, 
live longer and also could have a big impact on either preventing things or putting things off when it comes to dementia and Alzheimer's. We're going to meet those two doctors next on London Live. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We all want to live as long as possible, right? Let's hope so. Aging is is a tough thing. Well, there are scientists who've been looking for that so-called fountain of youth forever. And we are lucky enough to be able to talk to a couple of people who have identified something that is in the field of senolytics. You don't even have to know what that is. We're going to learn all about it. Dr. Tamara Chikonia and Dr. James Kirkland join us right now on London Live to go through senolytics and some of the things that they have been uncovering at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Chikonia and Dr. Kirkland, thank you for your time today. Thanks. Thank you. Let's get into, first off, I guess, senolytics, because that's not a term that we necessarily hear a lot about, but I imagine it doesn't leave your minds very often. Yeah, in fact, um, we began thinking about this very hard back in 2004. Uh, We wanted to think of a way of getting rid of these cells, which accumulate with aging, and they also appear um, in areas where age-related diseases like Alzheimer's disease or heart attacks or strokes or diabetes begin. And these are cells that Uh, produce toxins that kill other cells, that cause dysfunction at a distance. Even if there are senescent cells in one place in the body, they can affect the entire body. And they can spread to normal cells. So they they can confer their characteristics on normal cells and turn them into senescent cells. The thing about them is that they're very resistant to dying. So once they form, even though they're killing cells around them, they themselves survive. So we, we wondered for a long time, uh, we did the usual drug screening approaches, didn't get anywhere, and then we had an idea back in 2013 that, you know, why aren't they killing themselves? Why are they able to kill cells around them, but they themselves survive? So we actually used a computer approach to figure out that they've got what we call pro-survival networks, pathways and uh, processes that go on that they use to defend themselves against the things that they're killing other cells with. So it was a short step from there to figure out whether we could disable key points on these networks that allow these cells to survive their own hostile environment. And so we used what we call a hypothesis-driven approach. We didn't actually screen for drugs we knew what the drugs should do that we wanted to use, and we pulled them basically off the shelf uh, because we knew the mechanism of action that we were after. And we found that these drugs actually killed senescent cells in culture dishes, human senescent cells, but they left normal cells alone. In other words, they allowed these cells in a period of about 18 hours um, after we transiently disabled these pathways that they used to protect themselves they allowed these cells to basically commit suicide. Then we tried them in mice, and we found that we were able to eliminate the senescent cells that accumulate with aging or after radiation 
or after chemotherapy or in the context of high-fat feeding and diabetes or, and in other situations where senescent cells accumulate and where they appear to contribute to mouse and human diseases. So we found there are some, you know, now it's count, counting to over 30 conditions that we get some indication that we can delay, prevent, or alleviate in mice, which you'd expect if you're targeting a fundamental aging process, because we know that aging is the main risk factor for the bulk of the chronic diseases that account for most morbidity, mortality, and health expenditures. For example, your risk of getting Alzheimer's disease is 80% explained by your chronological age. So our, our view was that potentially fundamental aging processes like accumulation of senescent cells may be a root cause contributor not only to aging changes that occur in people, but also to all of these age-related diseases. And we were interested in this because, for example, if you cured heart attacks in older people, they would be instead choosing basically to die from Alzheimer's disease or some cancer because all these diseases are age-related. They cluster in people. Anybody you know, can think of elderly people they know who have five or six different conditions and are on 10 or 20 medications. I, as a geriatrician, see this all the time. So what we decided to do was go after this fundamental aging process and ask, instead of going after these disorders one at a time, can we go after all of them? And by doing so, can we extend health span, the period during life when people are independent, free of pain, free of disability, and free of disease. So at least in mice, we've been able to achieve this. They also had an increase in life expectancy if we started these drugs at later ages once senescent cells have started to appear. But that's not our main goal. We're not trying to uh, ultimately have people live to be 130 and feel like they're 130. Our main goal is to try to increase health span, the period during life when people are independent and able to do what they want. So now, now that we've seen that these things occur in mice and that other laboratories have replicated what we found with the initial compounds we discovered, additional senolytic compounds are being discovered. We call them senolytic because they destroy senescent cells. There are at least 16 now that are in the literature, and there are many more coming. We've had a hand in developing more than half of them. But now there are all kinds of companies involved in doing this, all kinds of laboratories around the world. So we're hoping that there'll be um, a big menu of these agents. And we've initiated clinical trials in people with these drugs with the main goal of initially testing them in people with very serious age-related diseases for which there's no current good treatment and where we know that senescence is one of the things that predisposes to that disease. Because this is a completely new way of treating people. We have to start small, slowly, and carefully. We have to make sure these drugs don't have side effects once we get to people. And so we have to balance risk versus benefit in the clinical trial. So we're starting off in very serious conditions to begin with. If things look good, then we'll move to less and less serious conditions and maybe even prevention in people if we're really lucky and if we don't find bad side effects and if we can show that these drugs really do work in people. Wow. We're talking with Dr. Jim Kirkland and Dr. Tamara Ciccone from the Mayo Clinic. We're talking about senolytics, but we're looking at something that could change humans. Dr. Ciccone, when you look at 
how this may play out. We always wonder about how long it takes researchers to go from mice to humans. You're mentioning human trials now, Dr. Kirkland, but Dr. Ciccone, what would be a, a timeline on this that, that would be tangible? So clinical trials are ongoing, and we hope, if we're lucky and we have positive outcomes of multiple clinical trials, it probably takes two to five years until we have answers with these initial compounds, which are in clinical trials now. And those answers would be, can we treat very serious, potentially fatal age-related conditions? You know, as I was saying before, the next step after that would be less and less serious conditions, and we we would hope that if we find we don't get a lot of side effects, we can start a march towards uh, uh, prevention. We did publish the very first very small pilot clinical trial in January, and that was in people with a very serious condition called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is relentlessly progressive, fatal, and is associated with accumulation of senescent cells. It was a very small study, only 14 subjects in it, um, it was a pilot study. We didn't have a control group, but we found pretty dramatic improvement in physical ability of these people who normally um, have trouble with walking, with moving around, with their physical function. We did, we did find improvement in those parameters in those subjects. So that was a glimmer of hope, but it's a very early step. We're doing a larger trial in that condition and also other serious conditions like frailty in elderly women or... Um, a kidney dysfunction in the context of advanced diabetes. Uh, we're contemplating and, and hoping to do trials in conditions like Alzheimer's disease because in most models it looks like these drugs may be effective there, but we don't, you know, that we've got a way to go. But a key thing that both Tamara and I would emphasize to your listeners is not to take these drugs. Uh, don't go out and, and buy these compounds, some of which are natural products, and, and start taking them because we don't know what the side effects are going to be in people yet. And really, the, the place where these drugs can be used is in the context of carefully supervised clinical trials where we're looking for side effects and we're looking for effects. So this is not for general use yet. We'd see the first uses being in people with very serious conditions. And then maybe, as, as Tamara said, that would be within two to five years, over the time after that, if we're lucky and we don't see a lot of side effects, we'll march more and more towards maybe someday an indication where very elderly people take these um, interventions to try to improve their general function, to alleviate the geriatric syndrome, things like frailty or muscle weakness or mild cognitive impairment, plus stave off or prevent age-related diseases. But that's a ways off. That, that could be um, five, ten, or more years. Uh, but we'll have to see if there are side effects. How do you determine whether or not you're seeing side effects that that would be something everybody could get? I'm I'm thinking of a lot of the commercials that promote drugs, especially in the United States, where all of a sudden they list all kinds of side effects. There, there are hundreds of them sometimes. How do you look for something that you say, wait a minute, we've got to pay attention to this one? Well, there are standard ways of doing this in clinical trials, but one of the advantages we have here is that we're using agents, either natural products or drugs, where there is already experience with these agents in the clinic for various conditions. So we're just using them a different way, a different kind of dosing. One of the things about senescent cells is that they take two to six weeks to reappear, at least in culture. 
So one of the things, an advantage of these drugs is that we can give them intermittently. So in the clinical trials, subjects are getting them once every two weeks, once a month, and the same with the animal studies. We get the same kinds of effects as if we give the drugs continuously, and these drugs are removed from the circulation essentially within a day. So we're using a hit-and-run approach because these cells don't divide. They take a while to reform, depending on the condition of the, of the patient. So we can give them intermittently, and there's already quite a bit of knowledge about these drugs in other contexts and what their side effects are. So we're hopeful, cautiously hopeful, that um, that gives us at least a bit of an insight into their safety profiles, and it also meant that we were able to get regulatory approval much more rapidly uh, to do these trials than would normally be the case. So we're hoping by using this strategy of repurposing drugs that we could move faster. We're talking with Dr. Jim Kirkland and Dr. Tamara Ciccone from the Mayo Clinic about senolytics and about some of the advancements that are coming. One final thing, and that would be, if we look big picture again, you mentioned don't go out, don't find the compounds, don't be ingesting this, allow the scientists and the researchers to do their work. But big picture one day, if we're looking at expanding that that healthy lifestyle part of our lives where you don't have the chronic pain, you don't have the chronic illnesses, could we see this available to or made available to humans, period, just to take when you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, kind of like we take vitamins now? Would, it, would that be a, a big picture idea? It's possible, but I'd, I'd submit that the, the time that these particular drugs would start would be in the 60s to 80s. And this would be based on blood tests that we're also developing and urine tests and other tests to find out when senescent, what senescent cell burden is in people. So we know that in the 60s to 80s in people, that's when senescent cell burden begins to go up. Or in younger people who've, who've got diseases that are related, you know, things like diabetes, senescent cell burden can go up very early. So one of the things we're doing in the trials is we're measuring senescent cells in people using a variety of tests. We're watching whether they decrease. And so I think in the future, what we'd want to do is develop blood and other kinds of tests where we, where we would know that there are senescent cells present before we start the drugs and which kinds of senescent cells so we could use the right drugs. Well, Dr. Ciccone, Dr. Kirkland, thank you so much for all of your information. Good luck with all of your research. It sounds incredibly exciting for all humans. Thank you very much. Yes. Thanks. We have... Dr. Jim Kirkland, Dr. Tamara Chaconia from the Mayo Clinic. And this is what they're looking at, the cells that kill off other cells around them. And these pesky things, they're in us as we age and you can't do anything about it. Now they're finding ways to do things about it. That's that's good. And it isn't to make you live to 130 and feel like you're 130. That part I love. It's to take the good years and stretch them further. Wow. 90 is the new 30. What do you think? It'll take some time, but it'll be here. We'll come back and let you know what else is coming on London Live today. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Coming up in the next hour, we are going to go to Saskatchewan. We're going to talk about the last year since the humble Broncos bus crash. We have a very special show tomorrow that will air between 1 and 2 
on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. And so we'll have just a, a little preview of that show. And we're also going to preview the second round of the OHL playoffs. Jake Jeffrey will be by, and we'll do that. Nights and Storm tonight, you can hear it right here. Up next, you've got news. Jacqueline LaBelle will be here. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Every day of the year is a day of some kind anymore, right? This past week we had National Ferret Day. Really? Ferrets need their own day? April 5th, that's where we are right now, 2019. National Day on April 5th. What is it today? Well, we'll get to that in a minute because I want to warn you, and maybe most specifically, I want to warn you, and your dog, that next Wednesday, you're going to be hearing that it is National Hug-A-Dog Day. I don't know. National Hug-A-Dog Day? Today, by the way, is National Deep Dish Pizza Day. That's fine. You can eat a deep dish pizza, but you can't really find one of those in that many places. And I warn you, if you go to Chicago and you try a deep dish pizza, be careful where you go and be ready for what it is. You know, you start thinking, wow, this is going to be great. Pizza, deep in a dish. I don't know what it is you're looking for. But if that's what you're thinking, it's actually just really thick. Usually the crust on it is just, it's really thick. It's like a big goopy pie that has a big crust. We even went to a place that was recommended. This is what deep dish pizza is? Huh. I thought it would be different. I didn't think it would be as thick. You're not going to get through a piece. So that's today. Don't worry about today. But next Wednesday, next Wednesday is National Hug Your Dog Day, which sounds like a fantastic day. Only no, no, no. No, it is not. It is not a fantastic day. It is a day that dogs will fear from now on. Dogs don't like to be hugged. I don't know. This goes to the personification of pets, which I will rail against on behalf of pets from now until the end of time. Pets are not people. They do not think the way that you do. They do not have emotions in the same way that you do. They don't miss you when you are gone. You know, we've got a cat that goes outside. You know what he does when he's ready to come inside? He comes to the door and he sits. And if we are asleep, as we sometimes are, because he won't come. You can call him. He's not coming. He comes when he wants to. Well, if it's 2 in the morning and he decides to come home, he will sit there until somebody gets up at 6 a.m., And lets him in. He'll sit there for four hours. Know why? Because he's a cat. He doesn't realize he's sitting there for four hours. He's just waiting for that door to open. We're not talking about intelligent creatures here. Now, I'm not trying to put down your dog, but here's the problem. National Hug-A-Dog Day comes along and everybody tries to hug their dog. Dogs will actually get stressed out if you hug them for too long. Because dogs live their life always being ready to run away. That's how a do- No, a dog doesn't live as... Yes, a dog always has to be ready to run away. And if you throw your arms around a dog, what does he normally do? <laughs> Tries to get away. Yeah, because that's what he wants. He always wants to have that clear path. Animals are always looking for that escape plan. Yeah, but they're in the house. They know. No, they don't. They have no concept that at some point a saber-toothed tiger is not going to walk around the corner and come down the stairs and assault them. That there is not some lone wolf upstairs in the bathroom closet. They have no idea that that's not happening. So they're always on edge, always looking out. When they hear a noise, it could be the end. 
You drop a fork in the kitchen, what does your dog do? The ears come up? What is that? What just happened there? Somebody dropped a fork in the kitchen. Is that that saber-toothed tiger again that I keep thinking is in the bathroom? So don't hug your dog on National Hug Your Dog Day. Because, and I'll even pull out the science on this. Psychology Today has put this out today in advance of National Hug Your Dog Day. And what they did is they conducted a study by way of the University of British Columbia. And they basically looked at stress levels of dogs when they were embraced. And in 81.6% of the cases, they found that dogs expressed at least one sign of stress, anxiety, or at least discomfort. That's 81.6% of dogs. Only 7.6% of dogs showed that they were comfortable being hugged, and those numbers don't add up to 100, so I'm not sure about the other ones. You have to do the blanket test with your dog, I guess. Maybe those ones failed the blanket test. You know the blanket test? You want to see if your dog is intelligent? You know what you do. You take a small blanket, and as your dog is sitting there, you put the blanket over the dog's head. If he tries to get away from the blanket and out from under the blanket, you have a very intelligent dog. If he just sits there with the blanket over his head, you don't. So I think maybe the 10% that doesn't show up in the study fell into the uh, don't category. But yeah. National Hug a Dog Day is not a good day to hug a dog. So we're making sure that everybody knows that. Good day today to eat a pizza, deep dish. Bad day to hug a dog on Wednesday, even though it does say National Hug a Dog Day. One of the other stories that has popped up that I wanted to draw attention to that, ah, I don't know, this is a good dinner table discussion. Here it is. It's a kid named Caden Walsh. And Caden is nine years old, and Caden is a triplet. He has two other triplets, because there's three. And they are girls, so they are his sisters. Caden has been looking for a sport that he really likes. So he's tried baseball, he's tried soccer, he's tried hockey, he has wrestled, he's taken part in taekwondo. So he's taken a good look around. And then his sisters started playing softball. And you know what? He really liked it. And in their backyard, they'd throw the softball around. They'd hit the softball. And so they play in a league, and he's nine years old. So he wrote asking for permission to play in the league. What did the league do? Well, the the league actually went out and they changed their rules. They changed their bylaws. Well, that's, that's encouraging, isn't it? Yeah, they're the Northern Valley Girls Softball League. They voted, they accepted it, they have changed their bylaws, and they have affirmed that this league is no boys allowed. So Caden is now writing another letter, and his story has gone quite international. He's from New Jersey, and he's still trying to get into the softball league because, hey, he says he enjoys it, and there's no boys softball league to play in. And he's using the word discrimination. Will Caden get himself into his sister's softball league? They changed the bylaws not to say, yeah, let's make a co-ed. Nope. They changed the bylaws to say no boys allowed. Girls only softball league. We'll follow that story for you. We're going to take a break. Up next, we are going to go to Saskatchewan. And we're going to look back a year ago when the Humboldt Broncos bus crashed 
It was essentially a year ago, what would be tonight, it was a Friday night, but we have 365 days. The actual year that we will make note of comes up tomorrow. And we do have something that we will have for you starting at 1 o'clock tomorrow. We'll have a preview of that in just a few minutes. And we're also going to talk with Lucas Punkeri, one of the reporters who covered the story being in Saskatchewan at the time. And we'll go through how this kind of became the story that it was, the impact that it's had on the province, and kind of how things are in Saskatchewan right now. So Lucas is coming up in just a couple of minutes, plus a preview of a one-hour special that will air tomorrow that will look at the Humboldt Broncos bus crash and just about everything that has been involved in it so far. We, we learned yesterday you know, the wheels continue to move slowly. Yesterday we looked at the trucking industry and we looked at changes that have been made. And Ontario has always had some provinces call it melt, which is kind of entry-level training. And so... In Alberta and in Saskatchewan and in Manitoba, you didn't have the same sort of restrictions. And we had an Alberta trucking company involved in this tragedy. And so now they have changed things in Alberta. They've changed things in Saskatchewan. They will be changing things in Manitoba. The other thing that was brought out and the head coach of the Humboldt Broncos um, who took over at the beginning of the year, he didn't stay all year, Craig Oystrich, had really started a campaign right off the bat for everybody traveling on coach buses to wear seatbelts. Coach buses a lot of times do have seatbelts, but they just aren't worn. I mean, it's strange. You get into a car right now and you buckle yourself in. You get onto a plane and you even have the seatbelt sign still. And now we've even been told to get into the practice of when you're on an airplane because it used to be oh yeah we're at altitude no problem get up run around now it's no you know planes can lose altitude we should keep that seatbelt on so we've got a plane we've got a car for whatever reason trains do not have the same kind of seatbelt restrictions and certainly buses do not we've talked at length about school buses and it does break into liability a lot of times and concern that if you had to get a small child out of a seatbelt because they had to get out of the vehicle as quickly as possible, maybe you could not. So there is still a catch-22 in school bus seatbelts. For coach buses, they're there, but they are not mandatory. You know, you don't get the dinging noise at the front of the bus if no one is wearing a seatbelt. And there are a lot of times when I sit on the coach bus that the London Knights drive around, and I look up, and I look at, at the top of the roof, and I look at just the configuration of the bus, given what took place in the Humboldt Broncos bus crash. And I have worn the seatbelt this year, but I can't even admit to you that I've worn it every single time. And that should probably change. And I don't have a good reason for that otherwise, other than you just get on the bus and you get doing things and, and you hadn't put it on. I have worn it, but I'd say even a majority of the time, I'm not. And that still needs to become something that I think changes. So we're still, we're still at slow progress. We really are from something that is as tragic and as awful, something you hope never, ever would happen in the first place, to where we are now a year later – there's been very little that has changed, but there's still a lot of discussion going on. So maybe just maybe 
you know, that's what that's what ultimately makes change in the end. Next, we'll head for Saskatchewan, and we'll bring you just a, a little preview of what you'll be hearing tomorrow at 1 o'clock. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. There's a reason we study things that have happened in the past. It is to hopefully make the future better. Sometimes the things that we have to study, sometimes they're things that you never wanted to have happen in the first place. And unfortunately, we have a lot of eyes and ears pointed towards Saskatchewan and Humboldt this weekend because it has now been one year since the Humboldt Broncos bus crash claimed lives of the Humboldt Broncos, their support staff, and it's something you you would never wish on anyone. Joining us right now is someone who covered it at the time, continues to cover what happens today, and that is Lucas Puncarry from the Prince Albert Daily Herald. Lucas, thanks for being here on London Live. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on here once again. Boy, we go back a year ago. This swept across the country very quickly, but in Saskatchewan, can you describe when the news began to break about the humble Broncos bus crash? Everything kind of went down. News started to come about 6.30 or 7 on the Friday. Um, and it was just right after, when I was working in North Balfour at the time, it was the day after Battleford's North Stars got knocked out by the Estevan Bruins in the semifinals. So I had gotten a text from a buddy of mine saying, hey, did you hear what happened to Humble Broncos bus? I went, no. And then that's when I started to get news there was an accident. I had friends who were covering the uh, Moose Jaw Warriors Swift Current Broncos game one of the WHL second round series texting me, asking what was going on. It was basically just coming out in drips and drabs. Then we were starting to find out it was worse and worse. It was pretty much a long night around the province and a long weekend pretty much a long week in general, just finding out what had happened, who had survived, and all that kind of thing. So it was a pretty rough time out here because, in fact, if, if you cover hockey out in Saskatchewan, it's a pretty small-knit and tight-knit province. So you basically either knew somebody, you would covered them playing mm-hmm. midget, or had just interviewed them and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was a pretty wild few days here. The national attention just kept growing and growing and growing. Is that something that people still talk about today? I think so, especially with the fact of how much the uh, GoFundMe had raised, $15 million in the national record at the time, and just the support for people coming in, in not just even the initial aftermath, but things afterwards as the months went on. Um, I was in Humboldt, um, I think it was shortly after, I think August or so, um, Chandler Stevenson, former Regina Pat, was on the West um, Washington Capitals team. He brought the Stanley Cup to Humboldt. And, you know, you could see how much it affected him and these uh, other NHLers like Scott Hartnell and those guys that came to Humboldt for that day in August. So I think for the people in Humboldt, just the support they got was something I think that helped quite a bit, and especially those just outside of Humboldt as well. We're talking with Lucas Puncari, who is with the Prince Albert Daily Herald and has covered hockey in Saskatchewan for a long, long time as we kind of look back a year ago and, and look at what has happened since. When would you say things kind of went back to just the town of Humboldt dealing with this and just the families dealing with this when, when everything did finally quiet down? Was there a moment you can remember maybe after, after the, the funerals or the memorial that was held? 
in all honesty, I think it might have been after the home opener, really. Like, it calmed down a little bit after all the funerals and that kind of thing during the summer. And then I think as you got closer and closer to when the uh, SJHL season got underway, the game between Humboldt and Nippon was broadcast nationally. So, obviously, everybody saw that. And then I think once that happened, it kind of got to a little bit of a sense of, I wouldn't say normalcy because there isn't going to be everything back to fully normal, but um, like once you get the hockey season underway, it kind of gets back to, you know, you're into the group things a little bit once you get the game out of the way and it's back to, okay, we're playing hockey once again uh, for the people of Humboldt. When you look over the last year, we've seen all kinds of things happen in courts. We've seen all kinds of things happen from parents advocating for changes to things like the, the trucking industry. Is this... Is this still a story that that people think about each and every day in Saskatchewan? I think close to it. You mentioned with, um, with obviously with the trial that took place and talking about advocacy, advocacy for uh, safer buses and uh, seatbelts on buses and improvements to highway intersections and that kind of thing. So that's still ongoing. And even away from that, just the tributes that have been going on here in the last little bit, there's been a couple of arenas. Um, one for Captain Logan Schatz um, and Logan Boulay um, from Lethbridge has an arena named after him now. And then just even with events that take place here in Prince Albert, um, Connor Ingram, uh, or not Connor Ingram, sorry, uh, Gavin Ingram, who uh, played for a, um, or Gavin Ingram was a player for um, on the Prince Albert Mentos this year. Uh, he was allowed to wear Jacob Light's number. Um, so they kept that number in circulation. Uh, the Prince Albert uh, AAA Bears uh, hockey team had a um, fundraising jersey to have funds go towards the SJHL's mental assistance fund. So, yeah, basically, I, I wouldn't say it's every single day, but almost every couple of days there's something new about some sort of tribute or some sort of event that's helping to, you know, keep the memory of the Broncos going and just help out the community and those involved still, however you can. And that must appear throughout all of the communities in the province of Saskatchewan and even in Alberta where some of the players came from as well. Yeah, I know there was um, there's four players from St. Albert uh, who were on that team: Jackson Joseph, Logan Hunter, Connor Lucan, and, and Stephen Wack, who all uh, passed away. And there's been scholarships that have been set up for those who played in that community. So, yeah, it's it's all over. And even like teams that are in Junior A that those players used to play for retired their jersey numbers. So, uh, yeah, if you go all over the West, it's something that I think no matter where you go, you have someone that's affected by it. Lucas, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks, Mike. Anytime. That is Lucas Puncari from the Prince Albert Daily Herald. So you, know, you think about how news travels, and that's that's kind of what it was. And then it, it built and it built and it built, and it became one of those tragedies that we will remember forever. We are going to have, again... A very special show tomorrow starting at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And it will look at a a number of different things that have occurred since. And it will look back at the time of the crash as well. So that's coming up at 1 o'clock. We will actually have an excerpt of that show that will play after news with Jacqueline LaBelle. And then we're going to look ahead to tonight.
As the Ontario Hockey League's second round of the playoffs gets going, we will talk some London Knights and Guelph Storm, but we won't stop there. Jake Jeffrey is going to join us. We will preview all of round two in the Ontario Hockey League, take you through each of the series and tell you some of the things that you need to know in order to make these things as interesting as they promise to be. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We have a couple of things happening tomorrow that I want to make mention of. One is our London Knights draft show. We'll be at the Bull and Barrel. We'll be live on the air from 11 until 1. The OHL priority selection gets going at 9 a.m. And there are some area players who are going to be selected. We're going to follow their stories. We are also, of course, going to follow the London Knights story and talk a lot about what the Knights are doing. But we also have some different perspectives from scouts. We're also going to go to Kingston, where they have already announced that Shane Wright is going to be the first overall pick. He's an interesting story because he was born in 2004. And as much as... The rest of the players being drafted tomorrow were born in 2003. He's a year early. He applied for exceptional status in much the same way that players like Aaron Ekblad and John Tavares and Connor McDavid have done, and he was granted that exceptional status. You don't want to put him into that category. That's a difficult thing to do. You can't say, well, he's the next Connor McDavid. Nobody is. Well, he's the next John Tavares. Nobody is. You know, scouts will say he's he's kind of like a Sidney Crosby. Don't do that. Stop doing that. We don't know what he is yet. He's a really good player, and he's good enough, and he's mature enough to play in the Ontario Hockey League. We'll see from there. And he's going to be selected by the Kingston Frontenacs. They have the first overall pick. One of the strangest stories of the year is the fact that the Flint Firebirds didn't win until game 18. Had a very long year and yet played well enough at the end that they actually passed Kingston, and Kingston finished 20th out of 20 teams and secured the first overall pick. So we will have that show for you. We're going to get a parent's perspective. We're going to hear players' stories of when they were selected. We have a number of things coming. So that's between 11 and 1. And then right after that, we are going to... We're going to have a, a very special show for you, a very special hour, and it is going to go back over this past year and certainly go back one year ago to the Humboldt Broncos bus crash. It's a documentary. It was produced by Global News and CHED Chet out of Edmonton, and it is the story of the Humboldt Broncos one year later. RCMP remain on scene after a bus carrying the Humboldt Broncos of the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League collided with a semi early Friday evening on Highway 35. Up there, right there in Saskatoon, it's just down the road. Uh, my buddy's kid played there. Yeah, I talked to him, he's farm in Saskatoon last night. And, and as the calls were coming in and they're talking about all the kids they've coached over the years that are playing on that team. Uh, I can't even imagine being the parent or the wife, or the kids. I know in Swift Current, um, that was tough. They're on their way to Nippon to play in Game 5 of their playoff series against the Nippon Hawks. The story of the Humboldt Broncos, one year later. This is the Chorus Radio Network. April 6th, 2018. One of the worst road disasters in Canadian history. 
14 people aboard the Humboldt Broncos team bus are killed when their bus collides with a semi-trailer that RCMP say ran a stop sign at the intersection of two rural highways. Two more would later succumb to their injuries. The Broncos were on their way to a playoff game in Nipawin, Saskatchewan. In the hours and days that followed, a nation mourned. I just got off the phone with the Prime Minister. Um, he sent his condolences to our city, to the Broncos, to the families. And uh, he also passed along condolences from a number of world leaders that have phoned him as well, including the President of the United States. Emotions have moved from disbelief through despair into anger into impossibility to being humble and beginning what healing may look like moving forward. It's been surreal since 5 o'clock Friday afternoon. The story of the humble Broncos one year later. You will hear that entire hour tomorrow starting at 1 o'clock. And it's something that will encapsulate a lot of emotions that were expressed at the time and have been expressed since 1 p.m. tomorrow. Next up, we're going to preview round two of the OHL playoffs. It begins tonight. We'll have the London Knights and the Guelph Storm. Coverage starts at 6.30. We'll have an hour-long pregame show, get you set, take a look at how the series could play out, because really, it could play out in any number of ways. If you want it, in a nutshell, the London Knights are faster, the Guelph Storm are bigger, but both are incredibly skilled and both have every opportunity to win this series. I don't know how to pick it. Jake Jeffrey will join us in a moment. Maybe he'll know. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. If you were to look back over the first round of the Ontario Hockey League playoffs, it was a lot like watching the sunset. It was amazing because it always is. But it was nothing out of the ordinary. The fastest a first round can be played in the Ontario Hockey League is 32 games. There are eight series. They are best of sevens. If all of them were to be four-game sweeps, it would take 32 games to play that first round. Well, that's never happened before. Yeah, well, this year it took 35. It uh, went by pretty quickly, and there were very decisive victories, leaving us with eight teams. Eight teams who kind of separated themselves from the pack throughout the 2018-2019 season. Jake Jeffrey and I do something called Around the OHL each and every week. It is an OHL podcast, and we talk to coaches and players. We talk about the big stories in the Ontario Hockey League. And Jake joins us now as we kind of break down the second round of the OHL playoffs and look at the four series that will begin tonight. Jake, let's start with the London Knights and the Guelph Storm because uh, this is a series... Everyone seems to be having a whole lot of trouble picking a winner for. 
Well, yeah, it's tough to say because Guelph made all those additions at the deadline, but they really haven't seen their full team a whole lot because they had so many injuries, but now they're healthy. So they're sort of firing in all cylinders right now, and I think they're playing their best hockey of the season, which is exactly what you want. This is the time of year you want to be hitting your stride. And with Guelph, um, looking at their firepower up front, they're very deep in the back end. If they can get some decent goaltending there, I think they're in good shape here. You look at the significant injuries this year. This is pretty amazing. Jack Hanley missed significant time. Cam Hillis missed all kind of kinds yeah. of time. He finally returned, not necessarily even in a full capacity in round one, but did dress, did get into games. They're bringing him back slowly. We should see more of him. He's a draft pick of the Montreal Canadiens and had a great rookie season as a 17-year-old. Pavel Gogolev, broken ankle. Sean Dursey missed significant portions of time after joining the Guelph Storm. Keegan Stevenson, even Alexei Tarapchenko. The thing about Guelph, and it's going to be interesting to see how they use their top two lines, when they first acquired Nick Suzuki and Mackenzie Entwistle and some of those deals before the deadline, they were playing on different lines. And you had Nick Suzuki and, and Isaac Ratcliffe put together almost instantly, but they were playing with Nate Schnarr, and it was a deadly line, very difficult to deal with. It seems that George Burnett has now turned that into two top lines, because Alexei Tarapchenko has been playing very well. He's a draft pick of the St. Louis Blues, and he's been out there along with Nate Schnarr and Liam Howell. And that leaves Mackenzie Entwistle, who won a championship last year with Hamilton, and Ratcliffe and Suzuki. So those are two lines that are tough to deal with, and then if you can get through that, you still have a lot of firepower that would throw Hillis in, and it throws in Cedric Ralph, who, whose motor never stops, and then a very deep defense. So so that's what Guelph brings, and like you say, health has them rolling. The London Knights, they have all kinds of firepower on their side, all kinds of offensive ability, and again, almost like Guelph, you look at their star-studded defense core, both teams have that. Both teams have defensemen and more than one who will play in the National Hockey League. And they're very offensive-minded, too. And you look at Guelph, who uh, dealt Ryan Merkley at the beginning of the year, and arguably their blue line's only gotten more offensive since. And he's he's arguably one of the better offensive blue liners in the league. But when you add a guy like Dirtsy in the back end, it really helps as far as the creativity back there goes. And then Marcus Phillips, who's you know much more responsible back there, but he can still chip in. He makes a good outlet pass as well. Both teams are going to have blue lines who are very active and I think are going to contribute on the score sheet. And you've got all of the big guns going. Alex Formanton, 11 points in the first round. Evan Bouchard had 10 points in the first round for the London Knights. Nate Schnarr with 10 points. So all of your big stars seem committed and ready and wanting to win. And that always makes for an excellent series. As far as picking it, well, here's why it's so difficult. These two teams met three times following the trade deadline. Guelph won two of them. The Knights won one. And none of those games was decided by fewer than four goals. So we're talking about 6-1, 7-3, and 5-1. Not even close, but yet they shared the victories. And sometimes they were midweek games, right? And sometimes those midweek games, it's the same as you having like a matinee Sunday game. It's sort of, you never know what you're going to get. And that's the case with that is these are teenagers and they're often distracted during their long regular season. And yeah, I know as a Guelph Storm team, you're coming into London or a London team, you're going into Guelph and you should be up for that game. It's a big rival, but sometimes things just don't go as planned. The other team may be a bit more up than you are. And I think that's what we saw in a lot 
lot of those midweek games is, you know, half your minds on last weekend and half your minds on this weekend. And you forget you had a big, midweek, <laughs> big, big midweek game. And that was the case there with this. Now you have a seven game series. You're going to be as prepared as you're going to be. Both teams have had a long layover since their last series, too. So they've watched all sorts of video. They've probably watched video back to their last time they met in the playoffs before this season. So obviously both teams are going to be very, very prepared going into it. I think it's going to be a very tight series. You're not going to see as many lopsided of victories. Or you could see that where, you know, London maybe wins 6-1 one night and Guelph comes back and wins 6-1 <laughs> the next night. That would be very interesting as well. I think I'd give the Knights the slight edge, but I haven't seen that Guelph team at full strength yet. And that's something that I haven't seen them uh, in person like that. So uh, they could surprise me here. And again, I said it earlier, any of these eight teams could win the OHL championship and I wouldn't be surprised. So I give the Knights the edge in this one, but Guelph could very easily win. Let's go to Saginaw and Sault Ste. Marie. Equally as difficult to pick based on how things went in the regular season, they split games. They were were as even as it gets. Saginaw had an overtime loss in their final meeting, but other than that, these two went back and forth and both won hockey games. As far as what to look for in this, Saginaw has that that extra carrot, I really think, yet Sault Ste. Marie has that added experience. You have more guys on Sault Ste. Marie who know what it takes to go far in the playoffs, but Saginaw is kind of doing this for the first time, and it's, yeah, this this is new, it's exciting, and you have almost the, the big brothers of Owen Tippett and Ryan McLeod who've been to an OHL championship series who can impart that, that knowledge that you need. So, again, I, is there a razor blade that we can kind of use to... To, to get between these two? It's tough because, yeah, you mentioned Susan Marie's a team that's come so close the last few years, so there's definitely that feel where, you know, we we, we, we want to get over that hump that we didn't quite get there. So we had a taste. We, we want all of it now. And then there's the team who's, you know, never made it to a third round and hasn't been in the second round in a long time, too. So they're just starting to get that taste. So do they ride that momentum, or is it the team who has the experience and is looking to get that a little bit further this year? I, I would give the edge to Saginaw. Um, Susan Marie had a great start to the season. Saginaw really turned things around with the coaching change and really took the league by storm and was one of the best teams in the second half and were able to catch Susie Marie eventually passed them for the division title. I would give them a slight edge but I mean you can't rule out a team like that. Anytime you have Barrett Hayden, you have Morgan Frost, you got good goaltending like that. I think probably one of the most underrated blue lines in the league. You got Mac Hollowell who I think is probably the OHL D-man of the year. Um, Jordan Sandbrook, he's the guy who's played in Memorial Cup with uh, Erie Otters so I mean there's plenty of experience there. It's it's going to be interesting. Uh, I think this, this could be a tough one. My worry was if Sault Ste. Marie got a bad matchup, they may not make it out of the first round, but they got a favorable matchup. That worked okay for them, but I think uh, Saginaw will be tough for them, and I'm kind of selfishly rooting for the spirit because uh, same with Sudbury in the other conference. You know, you haven't been there in a while. Get, get there. You know, I'd love to see uh, those uh, other markets uh, making a bit of noise, and I think Saginaw's done it this year, and I'm hoping they can make a bit more noise. Never been out of the second round. Let's go to Sudbury. They've never won an OHL championship in all the years. They were back in the Cooperall days. They have never won an OHL championship. Now they have to try and take out the top team in the league in the regular season. Hamilton Spectator Trophy winners, the Ottawa 67s. Quinton Byfield led all 16-year-old rookies, had three goals and seven points in the first round in four games. The Ottawa 67s had the highest offensive output in the opening round. They were averaging 5.75 goals per game. But this one, Jake, this may come down to a couple of guys between the pipes. And I remember it was our first episode after the World Juniors, and I believe we said, I, 
I can't wait to see if Sudbury and Ottawa meets in the playoffs because we're going to see Uka Pekka go against Michael DiPietro like they did at the World Juniors and what a goaltending performance that was. And, I mean, I'm hoping now here for seven games of this potentially because, again, I can't see it being a sweep. Uh, there may not be a sweep from here on out. We saw five in the first round and we may not see one um, from, from here on out. So that could be the case here, another tight series. But also if one of those goalies gets hot, one of those teams gets hot, then, you know, you could see it being a five-game series, all of them 2-1 games. Uh, I'm really intrigued. Playoffs is, is great for underdog stories, and you see uh, teams' defensive structures, scoring big goals, but I love a good good old-fashioned playoff goalie performance that really just steal a playoff game or steal a series, and I think both goalies have that potential this year. Ottawa has more depth, and the interesting thing coming out of the first round, Ottawa got 11 of their 23 goals against Hamilton, not from guys like Ty Felliber and Austin Keating and Marco Rossi, who we heard so much about during the regular season, from Graham Clark, from Mitchell Holscher, and Noel Hoffenmeyer, a defenseman. 11 of their 23 goals came from those guys. This one becomes Ottawa's to lose because of where they come in. But yeah, old-fashioned goaltending battle, we've got it. Now, finally, we've got Niagara and Oshawa, two teams who made a trade. Oshawa, remember, said, here are two veteran guys, Jack Studnika and Matt Broussard. Niagara, would you like them? They said, yes, we'll give you draft picks and a very, very talented young defenseman named Leighton Hewitt. Now they're meeting in the second round. You would think, okay, well, that means Oshawa was saying, yeah, we're thinking about next year. But they haven't played like a team that's been thinking about next year. Niagara came into this year, and they were very committed from the start. They believe this is their year. How close a series is this in your mind? I think this is very close. And we've talked about the Oshawa's trade deadline and how they handle it and how I think we, we both quite liked it, which, you know, they um, they sort of looked at it. You know, we want to not win this year. We want to win this year and next year. And that's the position they're in. And they were able, they traded away the captain, which, you know, most teams are going for it, don't do. And there's no knock on Jack Stadnicki either. He's a Boston Bruins pick and he's a heck of a prospect, but it just seems to be too good of a deal for them to pass up. And you look for the most part of their season, they didn't even have Leighton Moore in the lineup, who was the big piece, that first round pick, that two of two draft pick, uh, who's going to be a big part of that team going forward. He only got into the lineup after uh, coming back from an injury at the last few weeks of the regular season. So I think Oshawa... Their future is brighter because of this deal, but I think their present is still very bright as well. And this could be a tough one. I mean, there's talking about goaltending, you know, we Stephen Dillon had a great first round, and Kyle Kaiser may be secretly one of the best goalies in the OHL this year. That's another good goaltending matchup, and I think this one could go the distance. Well, we'll see what does take place. Starting tonight, four series begin. Jake, thank you so much for the time and the expertise. I want to say hi to Lynn Johnson. I got a chance to meet Lynn today. She was into the station. She was one of our ticket winners this past week. Won tickets to go and see the London Knights and the Guelph Storm in game number two. But game number one comes up tonight, and that will be a 6.30 start. And we'll break it down for you, and then we'll let the puck drop because that's the only way we're truly going to figure out what's going to happen. We've had people calling all day asking about which goaltender is starting tonight. Knights haven't said. They have not said. Jordan Coy played all of the games against the Windsor Spitfires to end or to begin and end round one, and he played the game against Saginaw to end the season. So we'll see. Will it be Jordan Coy? Will the Knights make a change? We'll know that in about two and a half hours from now. And uh, I'll tweet it out as soon as I do know. Let's take a break and we'll close out the show next. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. While we're on the topic of junior hockey, we need to congratulate 
Four members of the Knights organization, Evan Bouchard, nominated for Defenseman of the Year, Joseph Raymakers for Goaltender of the Year, Kevin Hancock, Overage Player of the Year, and Dale Hunter, Coach of the Year. And a couple of Londoners, get this, Nick and Ryan Suzuki are both nominated for Sportsmanlike Player of the Year. Brothers going head-to-head in that category. Tonight, it is the London Knights and the Guelph Storm who go head-to-head. Nick Suzuki is a member of the Guelph Storm. He will be in town. Thank you to all our guests today. Thank you to Andrew Graham for his help. London Live is brought to you by Courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South. We have news next with Jacqueline LaBelle and Matt Trevithick. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three.